First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaking to his country as a rebellion led by a one-time ally stunned the world. It proved to be short-lived, but raised questions as to whether the Putin regime itself will also be short-lived. On Russian TV that same night, there were complaints that some of the information about the uprising, led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the shadowy head of the mercenary army, the Wagner Group, was fake, totally made up. That the Russians were complaining of this is what you might charitably call ironic. After all, it's the Russians themselves who are among the masters of the false narrative. There is, of course, Another word for this insidious craft, disinformation. I'm Paul Brandis, and that's the name of this series. It's called simply Disinformation. And I'm Meredith Wilson, founder and CEO of Emergent Risk International, and I'll be providing analysis throughout each episode. And welcome again to season two, episode two of our award-winning series. You know, we've talked about Russian influence operations many times. There's no question that Moscow's disinformation efforts, and by the way, the organization responsible for an awful lot of it is called the Internet Research Agency, which was started by none other than the above-mentioned Prigozhin. We've mentioned it largely within the context of efforts to influence elections in the U.S. and the West, and to widen divisions here on already divisive social and cultural issues like race relations, immigration, and abortion. But Moscow's efforts don't stop there. The AGEO of Emergent Risk International, Evergreen's partner in this podcast, says the private sector and business community are hardly immune. I think it's really important for business leaders to begin to come to terms with the fact that actually Russian disinformation is everybody's problem uh, and that it has very specific impacts for the Western business community, both direct and indirect impacts. Just what are these direct and indirect impacts? The direct impacts largely fall into three areas. First, brand and reputational damage. Second, loss of customer trust. And third, Actual financial damage, a hit to a company's stock price perhaps, loss of market share, and so forth. In fact, sometimes we help the Russians by giving them things they can latch on to, such as the hyper-partisanship and dysfunction we often see here in Washington, like the recent standoff over the U.S. debt ceiling. So they take things that are happening in the world and they spin them out of portion and, and they they put them within a certain narrative, and it creates a lot of questions in the minds of would-be U.S. or Western you know, trade partners, European trade partners as well, about whether or not 
it's a good investment to continue to work with Western firms, right? So in the process of, of spinning out these narratives, and this is, you know, not the primary objective of these narratives, but it is certainly an ancillary benefit that they're happy to exploit. They begin to create environments in which governments and other local partners question whether or not Western firms are who they should be doing business with, because are those firms uh, going to be looking out for those their best interests, or are those firms exploitative? This is no small matter. Around half of all publicly traded firms in the U.S. are multinationals. The average one estimates the Brookings Institution gets about 40% of its aggregate income from offshore. So when disinformation about an American company or sector is spread, it could have an impact. Jabani Oat tastes like milk. One example involves the New York-based yogurt company Chobani. Now, why would a yogurt company be the target of a vicious disinformation campaign? Who would do such a thing? He's suing me for that. I've talked to my lawyers. This is a dream. Why, it's our old friend Alex Jones, the well-known conspiracy peddler, last heard on this series putting the families of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre through hell by insisting that the murders of their children never took place. He previously said that the September 11th, 2001 attacks on New York and Washington were orchestrated by the U.S. government. In 2017, Jones turned his sights on Chobani. Why? Because he said the company's plant in Idaho, which employs immigrants, was connected to a sexual assault case and an outbreak of tuberculosis. The claims were posted on Twitter under the headline, quote, Idaho yogurt maker caught importing migrant rapists. And from there, it was off to the races with other disreputable outlets spreading the claim. Chobani sued, accusing Jones, his platform InfoWars, and its corporate parent, Free Speech Systems, of making false and defamatory statements. Chobani got the last laugh, forcing Jones to issue this public retraction. During the week of April 10th, 2017, certain statements were made on the InfoWars Twitter feed and YouTube channel regarding Chobani LLC that I now understand to be wrong. The tweets and video have now been retracted and will not be reposted. On behalf of InfoWars, I regret that we mischaracterized Shabani, its employees, and the people of Twin Falls, Idaho, the way we did. Certain statements were made that I now understand to be wrong and that I regret making them. When people in a position like that say they regret something, what it often means is they regret getting caught or regret being held accountable. Jones falls into one of three categories of actors who peddle disinformation. He's an opportunistic actor. There are also corporate actors and then state actors like Russia, China, and others. That's an example of a direct impact on a company. Meredith Wilson says indirect impacts on a company are harder to nail down. That's where these long-standing narratives come in, where um, you know, you start to build this narrative that, you know, 
all Republicans are this, or all Democrats are this, or all Americans are this. And um, in overseas markets, what we see oftentimes is, and I think Thea has talked about this quite a bit, but the way that Russia in particular sort of prepares the ground for their um, for their military operations or whatever they may be doing um, in in the case of West Africa, there uh, you know they have seen several times these large scale disinformation campaigns about the West and about you know um, Americans coming into Africa and creating colonialism 2.0. She makes an interesting point here: disinformation campaigns against the West, which can wind up damaging Western companies, aren't necessarily deployed in the West, but in other parts of the world, like Africa where the U.S. and other Western nations are competing with Russia and China for not only influence, but raw materials that are crucial to our 21st century economies. Any corporation with a footprint there should always practice what I'll call information vigilance. I think one of the most important things is the consistent monitoring of the information environment in any place you're working. So whether that be West Africa or West LA, um, you need to be aware of the communities where your people are working and where your products are being sold and where you as a company have a presence, um, because that is where the issues are going to surface in real life. That said, it is also consistent monitoring of what's happening in the cyber world and in the cybersphere, um, both on the cybersecurity side, but especially on the information side, those influence campaigns that 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 sort of um, you know are are bigger than borders. They you know they they cross all kinds of borders. So those kinds of disinformation campaigns that are being amplified by the Chinese, by the Russians, by people who simply don't like you. Thea also chimes in on the indirect impacts of disinformation on companies and organizations, often around the theme that the victim is Russia. It's a theme, she says, which can find traction. These narratives focus around a sense uh, that Russia has been set up by the West, that you know Russia is the victim of the West actually undertaking a war against it, using Ukraine as the justification, that they are attempting to undermine Russian democracy and um, the Russian economy, and that it is all about the West attempting to exert its influence um, hegemonically across the globe. And of course, this has a number of follow-on narratives that, again, they can script very closely depending upon the region or the country or even the, the specific location. So if, if you know they've already established in the minds of some that the West is responsible for this war, then it follows to that the West is also responsible for uh, food inflation and fuel inflation and uh, global uh, food insecurity and the limitation of uh, countries to be able to effectively acquire fertilizers and things that they need to boost their own agricultural output. And so you, you can see that they've built this whole, this whole narrative around how the West is really damaging the whole world uh, in its, you know, effort to basically make Russia submissive. 
Thus, the message that folks in Africa and also Latin America and Asia often hear is one that perhaps they can relate to, a legacy of Western colonialism. Thea says this makes it easier for Moscow and Beijing's messages to take root. We see this a lot uh, in Africa and South America, where the, the narrative evolves from those ones that we just talked about to one in which there's sort of this anti-colonialism uh, or neo-colonialism uh, tinge to it all. And, and there's these accusations that Western companies are just going to come in, take the resources, exploit the local populations, leave the environment in, in ruin, uh, all for corporate profit, that they're not there to invest back in the communities. And so when they they work those narratives, what that does is it effectively denies Western businesses market access in some cases. It denies them access to necessary resources. If we're looking at things like, you know, increased competition for, for minerals and hydrocarbons, uh, then it can make that competition much more challenging. Uh, it can increase ESG scrutiny um, or, you know, compliance issues for companies who are operating in some of these areas. And in so doing, it can also increase the physical security risks that Western firms are, are facing in a lot of places overseas. The Russians also use another clever tactic to get their false narratives out, one that's particularly difficult to combat. More on that after this short break. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International. We build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome back. That's the opening to RT, a Russian TV network that for many years was a Kremlin platform used to spread Moscow's messages. It's largely gone on the West now, dropped by cable providers and other distributors. But that hasn't stopped the Russians and other malicious actors from adapting. One such way of adapting is called web spoofing, also known as typo squatting, or sometimes URL hijacking. This relies on mistakes that we sometimes make when typing a website address into a web browser. For example, by changing one letter in the address or by adding a different suffix, for example, .co instead of .com, some unsuspecting users could be drawn into a site that looks exactly like the real thing except for one or two stories that have been planted or tweaked to subtly get one message across. For some reason, this is a particularly big problem in Germany. Beatrice Saab of Democracy Reporting International tracks this stuff from Berlin. She calls such spoofed sites 
doppelganger sites. So they mimic German websites, new websites, and they just change the the final, right? Instead of .de, they would do .something else. And people would just not see that and they would consume that content thinking they were consuming, for example, the newspaper Bild in Germany. Can't this be stamped out? It's sort of like playing whack-a-mole. A few years ago, a group of companies in Sweden got together and established a central fact-checking platform to monitor disinformation. Guess what? That site was quickly spoofed itself, made to look like the real thing. Governments and companies, at least in the West, have stepped up their efforts to combat all this. But are we just scratching the surface? A Russian document leaked just a few weeks ago claims that only 1% of its efforts to spread disinformation have been detected, though some Western experts question whether that boast itself is disinformation. Thanks to Thea Gio and Beatrice Saab for their insights, our sound designer and editor Noah Fouts, audio engineer Nathan Corson, executive producers Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And on behalf of Meredith Wilson, I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.